just level it. No, oh, it's even a little better now. Okay, good. Well, the topic of the evening is uh, pilgrimage. And just to begin, I would like us each to try to imagine that um, this cushion here and now that we're sitting on is the diamond seat of all the Buddhas, that our experience of body and mind is inseparable from the experience of all enlightened beings, or whether before they became an enlightened being or afterwards, we can decide ourselves, but that there's no separation and no distinction between ourselves and that person who sat under the Bodhi tree 2,500 years ago. This is the seat from which each of us will find liberation. And that in this tradition, in this path, there have been hundreds and thousands of men and women who have benefited. And they started off being just exactly like us, an experience of a continuum of body and mind and awareness. And to whatever extent we can acknowledge this, that everything we need here is here in this room with our physical and mental process and with the tradition that um, we enjoy. I've found that to be a really powerful practice at times on retreat um, or listening to a talk to just try to remember that there's a very profound connection that can be made. Not, um, not me, I wouldn't say don't do this with me, but with your, if you're ever in the presence of a really profound teacher to imagine them as the Buddha and think of them as giving you those instructions is really nice. When I chose the topic of pilgrimage, I thought I would be interested myself in exploring it, um, partly because I've spent a lot of my time on pilgrimage, especially in the last 10 years or so, but also because it seemed a sort of odd and unusual um, topic to give in a meditation talk, since mostly um, the talks are about sort of internal realities or working with mental factors or getting um, seeing through or cultivating um, things inside ourselves. Where pilgrimage seems kind of external um, in comparison. And there was a period when I was designing the talk that I thought I should even like make a slideshow out of it and it would probably be more fun for everyone. <laughs> but then, <laughs> then you get into the dangers of pilgrimage, which is sort of like coming home and inflicting your slides on everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In 1983, I was. It's sort of a. It's a little bit of a like almost tainted subject or a lower practice. It's thought of, you know. And in 1983, when I had just come out of a three-month course at IMS, and Munindra was there, and he was talking about Bodhgaya and saying that with his inner eye, he saw that many of the people who were had been reborn in Bodhgaya had been at the discourses of the Buddha, and that they were all stream enterers and stuff. And I was quite excited, and I thought I really want to go see this place. So I was sitting in, you know, integration week and talking to a Western monk. And he said, oh no, you should go to the Bodhgaya in your heart. Don't bother with the external one. And I sort of thought, what a jerk. <laughs> you know, like, like, <laughs> like, why not go to the real one? You know, why not go to the inner one by way of the outer one or something? There was something a little prissy about it. Like, <laughs> And I think there can be a way that it feels like that at times to talk about pilgrimage. Um, of course, going to the inner one is more important than going to the outer one, and you can go to the outer one without going to the inner one. And he was right, really, but there was something in his tone that got on my nerves. 
So I'm now getting it off my chest. <laughs> but it, when I was thinking about pilgrimage, I'm, that in many of the texts it's recommended as a way of making merit and um, and making merit is not just sort of some kind of like thing like putting money in the piggy bank or something. It does. Or it's about elevating your mental state of your whole state of existence. And thinking about sort of legitimizing ways of describing pilgrimage, besides that it's sort of fun and adventurous and dangerous, I thought um, it's a way of recognizing wholesome interconnections and uh, cultivating a life of dharma in many different ways, a very broad and vast perspective. Um, I know that um, at the time when I first went to Bodhgaya, I felt that um, I had to be exactly poised at the interface of awareness and object with a very microscopic attention at all times. Um, and partly, I, I'll explain later, that the trip to Bodhgaya that I took sort of blew me out of that position, which had become a real problem for me in my practice. But there's something about saying that um, we're going to go somewhere hoping to have some kind of an experience, and we, we want to unite ourselves with a positive condition somewhere. Yet there's something that we're admitting that we don't know. I think that that is a really fundamentally wholesome movement, usually. In going on a pilgrimage, we also acknowledge the power of the environment on us, the power of conditioning, physical and mental, in cultivating our awareness and our freedom. I'd also just like to attack the distinction between an external and internal pilgrimage, since when we go to a place like Bodhgaya or even to Cambridge Insight Meditation Center or IMS or some of the meditation centers in California, um, we're actually taking an internal journey in external form. Every, you know, every part of the trip is imbued with meaning from leaving home to making the preparations to undergoing the trip to putting distance between ourselves and our ordinary life. It's also imbued with these mental factors, factors of intention and openness and faith. It's a willingness to connect with an environment where we expect to learn something. And it's also to sort of deconstruct ourselves with intelligence and relying on our understanding of body and mind within relative reality. That's um, making and showing that an external pilgrimage is internal. There's also um, a way that you can easily compare a Dharma practice with a journey or a trip. There's, it's not for nothing that this is called the Noble Eightfold Path, that we're kind of going somewhere in our practice, that we're leaving behind conditioned ways of being. Meditation is kind of thought of as inward, but if you think of inward, it's kind of, that can be a really misleading way of thinking. But there are actual things that we do and displace ourselves in space and displace ourselves mentally and make concrete changes in our lives. It's not like you're just sitting there with your little test tube brewing, you know, some better self inside with, that isn't going to be relevant <laughs> outwardly. So in both ways of practice, in both views of practice, the cushion practice and the going forth to a pilgrimage practice, you're leaving um, your conventional home, your way of seeing things, your normal position. Sometimes in pilgrimage, and as in Dharma, you sort of want to leave behind also some of the collective delusions that are perpetrated by our culture, 
or by our families. Um, we're trying to be free of our habit patterns, of our reactivity, and of the self that we think that we are, that sometimes we can feel imprisoned in. In the Buddha's time, they used the words going forth, going forth into the homeless life and having no fixed abode. And on pilgrimage, you make this quite concrete. But mentally, also, in this practice, that's some of what we're trying to do. It's one way of speaking about what we're trying to do is to cut some of the unwholesome roots that keep us bound. Also in a pilgrimage, you can say that you're sort of going to a center, joining a community. Um, I reflected a little bit about Cambridge Insight Meditation Center as the Bodhgaya of this area. (laughs) Pretending that we're in Bodhgaya here. That was when I thought it would be good to have a slide of the stupa and to bring some incense and some like tapes of monks kind of groaning and <laughs> throw some leaves, you know, and um, people could fight over the little fruits that fall down like they do in Bodhgaya when the Bodhi tree drops a fruit. Sometimes like two or three people are running after it so they can get it to take home and give it away to somebody. Um, but in any case, on a more sort of serious level, there's a lot that we learn by coming to any place where sort of the community agrees to make dharma into the norm or to make a community that's based on dharma. Not only you bring with yourself your openness and your willingness and your wish to hear something that's going to be overtly helpful to you, but also um, just in coming in the door and feeling kind of the silence and the way that um, people are kind of moving about in a careful way can sometimes really bring you back to yourself to being aware. The other thing that you bring with yourselves to a place like this is the authenticity that you check things against so that when you hear something that doesn't sound right to you, it's against the bodhgaya in your heart that you also check it. But when you think about the conditioning of an environment, you think about, for example, this place and the design that was um, sort of deliberately intended to um, induce a mental state. You know, there's a kind of clarity, a simplicity, beauty to sort of smooth you out so that you know that you've left um, the ordinary world to a degree when you're here. And there's some real wisdom in recognizing these conditioned ways of helping ourselves toward freedom. The thing to do is then to connect sort of from all those conditioned experiences of happiness or stillness to go into sort of being able to investigate them with clarity and wisdom. But sometimes we also would like to go farther away than just here. Um, For myself, there have been times when I've really wanted to go to the roots of this tradition to get sort of the purest possible imprints that I could find. If hundreds and thousands of people have been liberated through the teachings of the Buddha, I would like to walk where they walked or see hundreds and thousands of people doing it all at once instead of 25 or 40 or 100 people. I was also really curious to see what it was like to go to a cultural environment where enlightenment is valued and practiced by masses of people. And to some extent, I kind of wanted to get away from certain kinds of impasses or blockages that I couldn't see my way through them myself. And this is something that many people have experienced. Probably some people in this room have been to Asia and Um, You know, so many people say things like, the first time I saw the Himalayas, I was so profoundly moved, or the very stones in Bhutan seem to be speaking Dharma texts, or just seeing, you know, hundreds of people wanting to get into the Ganges or 
things like that, practicing in holy places, it can be an incredibly powerful feeling of homecoming or validation or like that you're not kind of struggling against the current of consumerism as much. In the Tibetan tradition, people are, you know, sort of enjoined to go and practice in a holy place. You know, that they, it's believed that in, if you receive a teaching in a cave where someone has practiced it for 30 years, it's more powerful now. Who knows whether we should divide that we know that that person was in the cave or that the cave is full of a vibration. Personally, I think both are true. Um, just now, I was in Bhutan in December, and my old teacher has died and his... When I describe it, it sounds very funny. His wife um, has him in the house still. He's a mummy. And he's inside this stupa-like box, which is totally decorated like Las Vegas. And I realized when I got there that I really wish that I'd brought her some Christmas lights or something, because she has these roses that have fake lit-up dew that goes down the edges. And then she has this flower arrangement that moves, and the flowers open and shut. It's really creepy. <laughs> it like the little shop of horrors or something. <laughs> and I went back a month later, and there was kind of more stuff like this on, and lights that flashed on and off and stuff, and really like the best possible decoration. But also there had been a llama in there saying prayers you know, for a year, day and night, and I felt like you could take any hard-boiled skeptic into that room, and they would feel something, it just, you know, despite the decor, <laughs> you know. <laughs> There's something like that um, in Asia that you have to do some sorting out sometimes culturally. But what you bring with you sometimes is the wholesomeness of your helpless feeling that you didn't know what to do before, or your willingness or your openness. And it joins with something genuinely wholesome in the outer environment that's there. Sometimes it's the community and of people who are practicing helps us to deconstruct ourselves, some of these bad habits we have. Also, sort of the farther away you get from home and the closer to one of these pilgrimage places, the less and less you're sort of going around and around in your car and stopping at the stoplights and feeling those frustrations. And instead, you're going kind of around and around a stupa instead. And, uh, <laughs> and it's different, what can I say? <laughs> it's, it's different. Sometimes you go to a pilgrimage place and there's really not very much else to do. You can sort of figure out where you're going to eat and then figure out where you're going to sleep. And then you see a bunch of people hurrying off to do their practice in the morning and coming back at night. And, um, there are just many, many ways of, um, that you're reminded about um, this sort of devotion or this way of turning your mind toward the present moment. Sometimes it can seem that even the hardships are part of sort of stripping away your habitual patterns. Just generally, I would say that um, in a non-mathematical way, part of what it takes to get there is part of what you get from going. It's sort of the fruits of your intention to be free and to be open and to see what's there. And it depends in quite a lot on your faith and your intention. Last night, I didn't actually hear this, but maybe some of you heard it, there was a report about the Kumbha Mela on NPR, which my partner told me about, and he came rushing in. He said, oh, you would have hated this woman. You would have hated her. She was a, a person that emigrated from India to here, and she thought the Kumbha Mela was completely absurd and awful. It was a crowded, I don't know how many million people are there, maybe 12 million people are there, and she thought it was just the most terrible thing. It was dirty and crowded and noisy, and she was very happy to find the Coca-Cola stand, and the end of her, her little essay was, Coca-Cola is Nirvana. 
<laughs> and I don't think I would have totally hated it because I know what she meant also, but um, I'm using that anecdote really to point out that um, some, it's sort of, it's in the eye of the beholder to some extent. If you need to go, you need to go. If you don't need to go, then you don't need to go. For myself, I was in Asia twice this last year, um, and not the year before, but I've made a point of traveling and going somewhere, usually once a year or so. And partly for me, it's a personal thing that since I was a kid, we were always traveling around. So partly for me, being away or being somewhere else um, equals being at home. And I feel a little oddly displaced in the US still, even though I don't look like someone who should feel displaced here. I didn't come and live here till I was 17. So it's a concrete looking for home personally for me, but I think also many of us feel that sometimes, somehow when you travel, you have access to a sort of more authentic self. The first time that I went to a Vipassana retreat, I took a bus from Texas to California. I had just graduated from college. And I was very much attracted to the things that I read in books. And when I got there, I was ex observing everything about everyone to see. And I, probably everyone can remember how it is to be a new yogi and to sort of look and see if people are wearing beards or you know, like what kind of cars they drive and how they act in a t sort of microscopic way. Like, is, is this what Buddhists are? Um, is this what they do? They carry their children on their shoulders. They do this, they do that. Um, then, once I was in the retreat, it was a completely um, different feeling. I thought, well, now I know what all these writings are about. It was a taste of the Dharma for me, and it was very um, exciting and thrilling. Enough to keep me for 11 years going to retreat after retreat. And By 1988, I had been to three-month courses, and three three-month courses in a row, and I wasn't enlightened yet, I didn't think. <laughs> I didn't think I was. I was not happy with that either because I felt like I'd really worked hard and I was tired of feeling that I was going to work hard all, you know, and when was it ever going to end? And I'd had certain kinds of experiences and then I was just the same afterwards. And so I thought, well, I should go to a place that's extremely and incredibly strict and pure. So I signed up to go to Rangoon um, to a meditation center, Mahasi Sasana Yeksa, which is. Um, still in operation, and it's a very wonderfully organized place where you do nothing but meditate day and night and day and night, and you are watching an object all the time. You're rising and falling of your abdomen, and then every sensation and every breath, and everything is completely standardized and formalized. And I thought this would be great. You know, that I would finally get smashed into the mold, and there would be nothing left but dharma, which is not. Um, it's not far from what they say themselves about the place that you just have, you, you have no, um, as long as you put in the effort and you do what you're supposed to do, then you'll come out enlightened at the end. Well, five months later, I had had uh, some very <coughs> profound experiences of purity, of openness, of freedom, of even um, liberation, but there were guns at the gate, and the whole country of Rangoon was, the whole country of Burma was boiling over, and the government was killing the people and things like that. So somehow I left with both an answer and a bigger question <laughs> about what did this mean to find peace in a place that was Buddhist that was also really not working. And that was something about sort of the 
the process of going on pilgrimage that I have often gone looking for answers and come with a bigger kind of question that led to another answer that led to another question. So I sat with my questions about, you know, the meaning of very profound internal type practice and for a couple of years until they, I couldn't find my way out and then I went to India. I now discovered that going somewhere was good. But I thought I wanted to sort of sit in front of the Bodhi tree and in my mind ask the Buddha and in my mind ask the most kind of profound question about Buddhism itself. Like, what does this mean? What does it mean that I've had these experiences and been to this place and yet there was so much pain there? And I went to the Bodhi tree and I practiced and I stayed up all night um, on the full moon. Or I tried to stay up all night, actually. It's not true that I stayed up all night. I went to bed about three in the morning because I was cold and tired. (laughs) And I had the same you know, experience that I would have had almost anywhere. I was just meditating and watching my breathing and watching my feelings and my thoughts and finding space and then seeing the space close up and open up again. And I kind of wanted something bigger than that. Um, So I was disappointed in my visit to the Bodhi tree on the full moon. But um, as I was leaving that retreat, which was a 20-day retreat that's done in January there every year, um, with certain other people, we went and practiced and here and there, we, and then we went up to a Hindu teacher in Lucknow, and I got my answer in a much bigger plane. It wasn't even a Buddhist teacher. But I felt that partly it was the connection of Bodhgaya that had made it possible, that actually deciding to go to Bodhgaya led me to this other thing, because I met people there who were on this sort of same intention, and there was something about the connection and the sort of what they would call auspicious or blessing or something that took me to the place where I actually needed to be. It wasn't where I thought I needed to be, but I did end up where I wanted to be. So a few words about Bodhgaya, which is um, really my favorite place in the world, and maybe I would think of it somehow as the center of the universe, where I think it's hard, you can't go there without feeling something really good. To think that the actual Buddha or the founder of our tradition was there, I mean, it might be just a mental construction, but it's pretty amazing to think that this tree, which is in the middle of town, is the grandchild of the tree that he sat under. And that there's a little, there's a big stupa, which is the place where he actually sat. And it's slightly displaced. Sort of the tree isn't exactly where it was, but the, you can go inside and be exactly where he was sitting, supposedly. Um, and there's something about that that makes this practice very real for me to know that there was this historical person. It's been a powerful place for many people. And the King Ashoka, hundreds of years later, fell so in love with Bodhgaya, apparently, that his wife got jealous. <laughs> wanted to cut down the tree, they say. I, don't know, I think that's kind of a myth. <laughs> In the mythology of Bodhgaya, they say it's the only place that won't be destroyed when the world systems change, and that all Buddhas have to be enlightened exactly there. Well, I don't know about that. I feel like that that's kind of a way of talking about the kind of meaning that you can feel in a place, and that it's not, it's sort of a For me, it's a way of opening to what a place means, not just the sort of materialistic interpretation of, well, this is a place, and there's a historical connection, and that's powerful in your mind, but to sort of think about how profound the effect of being in such a place or having the mind that's open to what's possible in such a place can be. Right now in Bodhgaya, there's a thing going on called the Nyingma Prayers, which is sponsored by 
um, a lama on the west coast where all the head lamas of the nine big monasteries go and there's hundreds of monks chanting day and night and hundreds of people come from the all Himalayan region all over the world, um, Japan and Thailand and they're circumambulating the stupa all day long and until about 10 o'clock at night. So from about 4 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night there's like about, I don't know, there must be 2,500 or 3,000 people practicing there all the time. And it does, it puts you into a trance, kind of. It puts me into a trance. Some people hate it, like they feel like it's just crowded and the, you know, they have these butter lamps and they're smoky and they smell. <laughs> and people are pushing, like they're going around and they're doing their mantras and they sometimes will kind of push you and you feel like you might fall down sometimes if it gets really crowded. Or if anybody's giving out anything that's free, that's really bad and dangerous because everybody wants it and you can get smashed against the gates. But there's something like so like being inside a cyclotron going around there, like your little molecule being accelerated. And I feel like that's part of what's nice to allow into one's practice is a little bit of that feeling of transinduction or mood of openness, something like Christmas spirit or some synesthetic thing where all of your senses are engaged, the sounds and the smells and all of that. Again, it depends on whether or not you're open to it. I sent two of my friends there and telling them this was just this great thing. And I heard back from one of them who said, one of her friend, the Zen one said, there's absolutely nothing here. There is nothing going on. <laughs> she's partly right. <laughs> and then my friend, the more like fun one said, but the nothing that's going on makes me want to practice eight hours a day and just be down there all the time because <laughs> it's fun. So both are kind of true. But for me, I think that, I think this is part of getting into the subversive part of the thing about pilgrimage or of acknowledging this kind of aspect of practice, um, even in a place like CIMC, but also the, the problem with saying that if you want to go there, then you have to spend all this money and go. But that if you practice in sacred places, sometimes it's a little unpredictable how you'll feel or what will happen or how much openness you can cultivate. Um, there's this Tibetan practice called the Nundra, where you're supposed to do 100,000 prostrations and 100,000 100 syllable mantras and 100,000 mandala offerings and 100,000 guru yoga prayers. But if you go to Bodh Gaya, it's each, each one that you do is a, hundred, is a thousand, I think they calculate, because it's more powerful the place. And if you do it in Bodh Gaya on the full moon, each one is worth 100,000 of each. So. <laughs> One um, poet named John Giorno from New York um, went to his teacher and said, I was, on, I was in Bodh Gaya on the full moon and I did one prostration, one Vajrasattva mantra, one, one mandala offering and one guru yoga. So what do you think? And this was a sort of open-minded lama. And he said, well, do you really feel that you've completed it? And he said, yes. I said, okay, fine, you've done it. <laughs> but it was because there was a real feeling of that depth of openness and he wasn't just joking about it. Which it. Now it means that none of us is allowed to do that because we've already heard about it. <laughs> so I will. I confess that in my pilgrimages, I have, um, you know, gathered dirt from holy caves and put it in the parts of my house. You know, between the beams of my house, I've gotten water out of the Ganges and I came home and put it on the dog's head. Um, <laughs> and, I bought a little bag that says Bodh Gaya 2000 because I was there in the millennium. <laughs> 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 
And I have incense, which I, when I burn it, it makes me sort of feel like I'm there. Um, and it kind of can make some of my practice feel more conducive. Like it sort of opens me to some of those associations and memories. And even one of my friends was guilty of the same thing. She came over and she said, oh, wow, it smells like India here. It really feels like we're in a temple. And like, yeah, <laughs> good. So in a way, I feel like there really is something to that sort of, sort of a little more juicy feeling. But on the other hand, it's also, you know, dangerous to think that just by this you're going to sort of get ahead, or you could just spend your whole time in yaya land with your incense and your butter lamps and your circumambulations and kind of fetishizing all the, your souvenirs. And for a lot of places um, where there is a pilgrimage site, if you ask them, the local people, they'll feel like the pilgrims are all in a trance and really disconnected from reality or disconnected from them or from the real life of the place. Um, you can just go there with your projections, and if the place is alien enough, then you'll just experience your projections, and that's it. One of the, in this recent trip to Bhutan, my friend was saying, well, wouldn't it be great to do a five-year Dzogchen retreat on such and such a mountain by such and such a monastery with all these yogis who are doing it? And someone who knew the place very well said, um, they're all so angry at each other that they're carrying weapons. <laughs> they're like ready to actually kill each other. <laughs> well, no, I maybe mean, we don't have to actually go there. <laughs> maybe it'd be better to do our little retreat at home. Also, say when you in Bodhgaya, it's like this huge shopping mall. Like there's a you know there's this puja going on, and they come and they give all the monks 50 rupees for their recitations every day. And at night they come out and they shop, shop, shop till they drop. Like they're buying like. Walkmans with holy music, and you know they're buying. The reason I have a shoulder bag is because they were all made for the monks, and you know beads and this and that and trinkets and spending their money right away. And meanwhile, sort of underfoot, there's like all these incredibly maimed and leprotic and hungry beggars and beaten wives and incredibly poor people, kind of all trying to get whatever they can. The crumbs that are falling from this, you know, sort of sponsored event. So it sort of can be both touching and charming, and there's arguments going on constantly in Bodhgaya about whether this culture of Buddhism is kind of over the top of and just you know, completely disconnected from the reality of the lives of the people around there, or whether by having this kind of holy magnet that people come and eventually do give people jobs, and they've built a leprosy sanitarium and things like that. But the amount that sort of does the amount that's spent on the puja itself, millions and millions of dollars, justify sort of giving like one one hundredth of a rupee to all these beggars that are outside. Like, how does that really work? The other thing that happens in some pilgrimage places is that all these sects come together and they all criticize one another and sort of fight over whether this giant golden Buddha should be built outside of Bodhgaya or should we really have the real stupa and um, to some extent, that's an indication of kind of the vitality of a tradition that people come and see and they work it out and they try to decide what is most essential in a place where they're all together. And in another way, it can you know, sort of lead to violence, like it has led to violence all over the world, that holy places are kind of dangerous in that sense, that people go and destroy the tomb of your saint and then we kill a bunch of you and then we'll like, you know, the re recent visit of Ariel Sharon to Joseph's tomb in Jerusalem was one of the beginning of this recent wave of violence um, and fighting over who gets to keep the holy place and who gets to name the holy names. So that is kind of the indication also of the dangers of pilgrimage, missing the meaning, 
when one should have gone to the Bodhgaya in one's heart instead. I would also say that you know going to Asia sometimes may set one up for like really big disappointments. Like you go to a Lama that you think is going to be great, and you find out that their disciples behave like much worse than the person who gives you change at the corner spot at your house. You know, than you would like. Sometimes I felt like. I just want to go and buy some 2% milk from that lady and she'll give me the right change and that's it. You know, there's none of this like ideological bullshit that allows people to be mean to one another and divisive. But I would say that over a lifetime of doing these things, which it's almost a lifetime now, it's half my life, um, that facing all of these sort of vicissitudes has led me to greater independence of mind in practice, that I would still like to go to these places, but I go with wise attention to sort of see what's the most, what are positive things to cultivate. And if I see something that's going on that's really reprehensible, I like try to figure out how to protect myself from it internally and also see if there's anything productive to be done externally about it. So there's some danger. I mean, I think that happens in any place where you go to receive teachings, that you're trying to open yourself to some kind of a pure imprint. And sometimes you get sort of a mouthful of sewage instead. Excuse me, but it can happen. So any time that you go anywhere, just see if you can learn how to sort of swim in the Ganges, but not open your mouth and swallow anything toxic. Just in general, that this talk has led me to reflect a lot on the absolute and the relative, and to see how these things have an interplay in our lives, how the relative conditions can lead to the absolute, and how even sort of things that are supposed to be of benefit for our minds can become just an external kind of observance that they don't open to greater awareness. And I think that's at the heart of what is wholesome about pilgrimage and also what's dangerous about it. In other words, to be able to be open to the possibility of transformation or of something that may feel kind of magical, but not to exoticize and to project or to remain caught in external observances. Like, I've felt happy that I've seen sort of the traditions in their native place and that I know to circumambulate and sort of keep things on your right and stuff like that, but also not to get trapped in those things. The thing that's subversive about pilgrimage is subversive about genuine practice in general, that you go with your faith or your, as a bridge or your openness to whatever's there is transforming, but ultimately it has to be taken on by you independently yourself. If you go somewhere to allow your old ways of thinking and your stereotypes to dissolve, so you're dying to your old life, even to your old practice or to your spiritual position. You come to a place that is not at your home. You pay some money, you're gone from your ordinary place. You leave behind your relatives and your job and your pets and your car and the ordinary pathways and distractions and burdens and guilts of your life. You're open to something new and hoping that you can be transformed. You don't know exactly which aspect of the experience is going to be the transforming one, whether it's just a moment of kindness as you go in the door, whether it's some word that you'll get from the official teacher, or whether it's sort of saying that you didn't like it there and you're just going to go home and go back and be your same self that you were before and like it more than you used to. 
What I've found, though, is that in this wilder and broader outlook that um, I have learned things that I didn't know. Say, like, when I went to Thailand, I was shocked to hear a monk say that you can get enlightened by various ways, including just listening to a discourse, which was not, I thought that it all had to happen on the cushion. And I thought, well, of course, people were getting enlightened from hearing the Buddha. But I wasn't thinking that the modality of just sitting there and listening was going to help me really. So going on those pilgrimages actually dissolved my practice pattern and some of my more sacred beliefs. This is what Malcolm X wrote in 1966 in his um, autobiography. After he went to Mecca, you probably know, and was assassinated shortly after because he was holding more pacifist views. He wrote, you may be shocked by these words coming from me, but on this pilgrimage, what I've seen and experienced has forced me to rearrange much of my thought patterns previously held and to toss aside some of my previous conclusions. Love, humility, and true brotherhood are almost a physical feeling wherever I've turned. During the past 11 days here in the Muslim world, I've eaten from the same plate, drunk from the same glass, and slept in the same bed or on the same rug while praying to the same God with fellow Muslims, whose eyes were the bluest of blue, whose hair was the blondest of blonde, and whose skin was the whitest of white. And in the words and in the actions and in the deeds of the white Muslims, I felt the same sincerity that I have felt among the black African Muslims. We are truly all the same, brothers, because their belief in one God has removed the white from their minds, the white from their behavior, and the white from their attitude, meaning power and authority and structure. I could see from this that perhaps if white Americans could accept the oneness of God, perhaps they too can accept in reality the oneness of man, cease to measure and hinder and harm others in terms of their difference in color. So for that, all the plane ticket and the risk of ill health might be worth it. And so, well, um, whatever good experiences you have on a pilgrimage, then you come home and for me, I find that uh, Victoria's Secret has mailed me every day a catalog and half the plants are dead and certain bills have gone unpaid to the point where I'm getting like really bad letters from various agencies. Mm -hmm. People who are supposed to take care of things haven't really done it. Um, and it takes a very long time to sort of get back to, you know, I'm dying to get right back to routine, and yet I'm sort of still like paying for my trip in a way, and finding myself sort of filled with impatience and nostalgia when I didn't have any of these responsibilities. So the question is sort of when coming back, how hard is the bump, which I think we've all felt when we come back from a retreat as well. What happened to those feelings that one had on the pilgrimage? Do we actually begin again that practice of finding the uh, Vajra seat in our own house? Was, or was our whole pilgrimage a kind of tourist exercise and delusion and sort of temporary good experience? But does it, what happens when you get back? And I would say that I haven't ever found any of them completely worthless. Like, that I feel like the center of gravity has shifted, especially sort of being able to define my life, not necessarily in terms of going or coming, but in sort of finding freedom no matter where I am, that it's not the point to get away from where I am, and it's also not necessarily the point to come back to sort of, quote-unquote, real life, that 
everything is a place of cultivation, whether you're leaving or coming. And if any of us is looking for what we don't have at home, if we actually don't have it, it's possible that going to a great length to find it will be helpful to go somewhere and look for it where you think it might be. If you don't find it, you'll learn something from that also. My teacher in India, Punjaji, used to say that his favorite student was the one who came and took one look at him and got on the plane and left. (laughs) Since he felt like his job was to give back what each person already has, to teach them that there's nothing external really to look for. But in my own case, I feel like I'm sort of piteous and pitiful enough that I've had to go far away sometimes to find out that. So may we all um, cultivate the wholesome factors and discard the unwholesome ones in our lives, whether staying home or going away. May we use our lifetime in the best possible way to cultivate profound liberation and happiness, both ultimate and relative. Thanks. No. That's your namesake. I was wondering uh-huh. because of the lilac, perhaps you had used that too. It's, it's, uh, oh no, do you recommend it? Um, yes, it's a wonderful book. Well, it was written by Wheeler. Really? Which was, wow. wow. <laughs> Maybe I did write it, I just didn't know. <laughs> in some altered state. I wish I could write it like that. <laughs> I, um, I must admit, I'm, I'm a little disappointed to hear that you're not because it was not until you were introduced that it even occurred to me that that book was written by Keith Wheeler. That book um, led me to go on a trip, to, a month-long trip to Italy with a friend quite a long time ago. First time I traveled in Europe, first time I spent that long out of, uh, away from work and all of those things you were talking about. And though I didn't look at it at the time, certainly the first thing in my life that I'd ever uh, consciously done as a pilgrimage, and it was at that time in my life, which was in 1987 that I did that, um, had produced some of the most marvelous and most thoroughly hateful experiences um, I'd ever had. I came away from it both, you know, with this incredible range of experiences and from things that were just marvelous to learning things about myself that I definitely did not want to know. Um, <laughs> that I started bringing this up because there's a chain of events that I won't get into entirely, but that trip led to, some, led to something that led to something that led to my moving to Seattle, that led to my moving back to Boston, which in a way can be basically to the why I'm sitting here tonight through doing all you know, there is that definite causality right. you know, to it. So um, it fits the pilgrimage pattern or something? Very definitely. Yeah. I've done that just with my entertainment story because I had to get myself started talking. Um, I just finished reading a book 
called Karmakola by Gita Mehta. Yeah, I read, read it. That? Yeah. I, I literally today just finished reading that. So when you were talking about Sagaya and the 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 comments of people in India that the people who come, the, the, the pilgrims, come there and seem incredibly disconnected. The entire book seems to be stories of people going there and sort of leaving their brains, uh, <laughs> right. leaving their prajna at, at customs. Um, She's specifically against Westerners in that book, though. Yes. I think that the same case can be made sometimes against Asian Buddhists, or you know, it's I, I was annoyed with that. I think she has a point, sort of, but I think she's also being a little bit like proprietary, like a Hindu, or you know what I mean. That's part of what you learn when you go there. That the lamas think if you can't say that their particular prayer, that you're a completely uneducated, unenlightened Buddhist, you know, and you sort of feel <laughs> annoyed. <laughs> you know, but you know, partly she's she's right. I mean, you sometimes you, you go there and you think I'm the only cool one amidst all these other deluded, bead swaddled people. You know, <laughs> like trying to look like, some, like they're enlightened. Or you, do you know what I mean? There's a lot of play to be had in that area. I think. What's been your experience with trying trying to maintain some discriminating awareness in? in these situations and have their has um, I must admit I, I I'm I'm the sort of person that you know reading or read some of those stories the things that people that she tells you about you know um, I had the same sort of reaction I did the first time that I went to a retreat center and the place seemed to be inhabited by people who didn't know the seventies were over. Right. You know, I can't just what you know, get over it. But, um, but there's a certain a sort of attitude that closes closes off um, the possibility for inquiry. When you're being judgmental like yeah. that, you mean? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, it seems like the Malcolm X experience is sort of that you if you can have that, it's nice that everyone is there sort of for a reason or for a similar drawn by the same thing. And with, you know, sometimes I think about, like, especially for Westerners, because I know the stories of some people who go on pilgrimage, that there is often like something really, you know, sad has happened to them before they kind of have time in their lives to even go. You know, and when you think about the vulnerability, that's what I think isn't nice about Gita Mehta's thing, that people, you know, people may be deluded and we may be stupid and we may be out of style or something, but there's something kind of touching about sort of going to a place like that and sort of even wanting something. And I think it's cruel to, to just sneer at it usually. So I think that that's kind of that community and being kind of leveled out to the, to the point of saying, like, we're all here for one reason is a good way of getting to that. I mean, of course, then, like you, I tend to glamorize certain people who look great and other and look down on certain ones. And, you know, people get psychotic by the Bodhi tree often. I mean, they're so vulnerable. That, and there's a lot of sort of intensity and people just break when they're there. And is it because there are demons by the Bodhi tree or is it because the most vulnerable are also attracted to places like that? I don't know. But so it's not only discriminating awareness to apply, but also compassion at the same time.
a few weeks, everybody's face has kind of fallen down because they're not like looking cute anymore. They're not smiling, and they kind of can. When you see them all meditating, sometimes they look so sad, and you know these other parts of themselves come to the surface. It's really yeah, touching. But then you have to think, well, I'm here too. <laughs> that's another one. I think that's a good discriminating awareness thing. Anybody else? A lot of times I write about places I've been because it was exciting to be there. Um, but say on a pilgrimage, I usually don't write. I, I'm trying now to, I think, include a little more of the internal side of it because a lot of times this, there's sort of the inner story or the inner meaning of why you're going to a place. And then there's the external stuff, which is all the things that you might like to criticize or give free rein to your um, bad mind. <laughs> Like the, the retreat I was just on in Bhutan, for example, was we're not supposed to ever discuss the practices that we did because there were these esoteric Tibetan things. And so there was this very sublime level where I felt like I was on another planet doing these amazing things that I hadn't even, wouldn't have imagined as even being practices in the past and certain kinds of visualizations and running around and you know, movements and stuff. And then, like, I'm gonna, I come back from it, and I feel like writing a story, but about the things that happened with the people on the retreat. Like, there was this couple that started to form, and half the retreat spent a lot of their mental time watching this couple in formation, <laughs> because <laughs> some of them knew one of the, the, you know, the person was there without his partner, and his wife was at home with Lyme's disease, and then, you know, this woman said to him at dinner once. How does it feel to have a wife who's stuck at home with Lyme disease? I'm like, oh, you know, when are you going to push her over the cliff, too? You know, because that was the same person who got together with the guy later. So there was an incredible story also going on that was sort of legitimate to write about. So I'm going to write about it. <laughs> it's heavily disguised, um, probably, but even if they know, I don't so much care that they might know it might be sort of about them, because then they would have to step forward and say they actually did those things. <laughs> I don't know. But so there's a thing like that, that, you know, partly going away for me is a fun thing to do, and it exposes me to things that feel exciting and feel like I should write about them um, just naturally. But there's also can be a kind of sterility or travelogue aspect to it, too, that I think in there's a temptation to really make the environment in a story very vivid. And there's a burden that you take on, too, with having to explain everything, like what is Tibetan Buddhism? Because when I'm writing fiction, it's not for Buddhists. So I have to sort of find these artful ways of putting cultural information in. And that's like this whole other thing. But somehow it's the thing that I'm more inspired to write than other things. So that's kind of that's just my story writing life is mixed in with those things. Although I would say that sometimes I've thought of writing something and it's been imaginatively powerful and then I've found a way of going by writing a travel article and I write the travel article and then I keep certain parts of it for other, for, you know, so there's all these levels. There's the me part that wants to go, just me. 
And I want to go down in the bottom of the cave and see where the blood of the goddess comes out once a month, you know. And I go down in the cave and I have an experience, and then I want to write about it, and then there's a part that goes to the novel about someone who's like me or isn't like me and stuff like that. So it's, it does make traveling very fun to have a lot of things going on. But I think what you're saying is true, that part of what's boring about giving a talk on pilgrimage is that everyone has been to places where they've experienced changes in themselves. And for me to sit up and talk about me going to Bodhgaya and how I think about Bodhgaya is not as not as interesting, perhaps, as having a dialogue about things like how did your trip to Italy change your life or something. Well, that, that's a really good, fascinating question. Like, sometimes you can run afoul of the translator and get into a big problem with that. Like, some of the, you know, very disappointing characters on the Dharma landscape are translators. <laughs> um, because they control your whole access to the person. And, and sometimes if you don't like them or you don't feel safe with them, then you're afraid to ask your question. There's a lot of times that they don't speak English or they don't want to speak English in this very rarefied way. They, can, they feel that they can speak conventional English, but if they want to give a Dharma talk where the meaning is really essential then, or to have an interview, then um, they don't want to. So they ask to do it with a translator. And sometimes it's great and sometimes it's not great. Um, and a really good translator can really make a beautiful experience and a kind of funny translator can just make you laugh and, or also they'd say things wrong sometimes um, and as for coming to the US I think many of the teachers that I've been with have come to the US but it there's almost a generational thing about whether they've come to the US in their minds you know the, there's the young llama that some of us have studied with who gets a lot of his images out of videos that he's seen, like when he talks about an unwholesome mental state and he says, well, it's just like in the Terminator movies, you know, you can shoot it a few times with your awareness and it doesn't die, you know, you have to keep shooting it and finally it dies, you know, you know, you feel that you can sort of relate to them. And I feel like there's a sort of a, there's good and there's bad with that because sometimes like people really from the old style, they come from something that is so profound, like you cannot necessarily bring your problems to them in the same way at all. Like you say, well, I had something, I don't know if it's a dream or a memory, and I thought it was this, and they say, well, was it a dream or a memory? And you say, well, you don't know, and they say, well, how can I answer? <laughs> you know, things like that, they can't sort of change their categories very much to relate to you. But on the other hand, you feel like you really have something to relate to in them, so it requires something different on your part from, from different ones. And some of them don't even want to teach Westerners, or they don't come to the U.S. and they would never come here, and you know they'll just barely bop you on the head or something. No, <laughs> why should you go see them if they think you can't learn? I don't know, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. I might like to go to Dharamsala. That's one of my thoughts. I would like to go there. Um, there's a teacher there that I have a little relationship with. I would like to see them. 
and where the you know that's where the Dalai Lama lives in exile, and there's sort of lots of practice also going on there all the time. But then on my way to Bhutan, I was in Thailand, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to go <laughs> monastery in Thailand? Wouldn't it be nice to go to Burma? Wouldn't it, it would, just anywhere is really good. <laughs> But meanwhile, I've been practicing a lot at home, so that's kind of... No, I haven't. Do you, what is it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I've heard of that, that the untouchables do it. I don't know if it's in Gujarat or where it is. Do you know, Kate? It's not Vinoma Bhave. Ambedkar, that's right, that's right. I haven't seen it so much. Of You then also know that it's because of the freedom from the caste system and that and say like in the one of the main things the Buddha did in his order was that you were strictly by time of ordination which was pretty subversive at the time because depending it didn't depend on what caste you were in or what your social rank had been it was just what day you ordained then you were sort of higher than the person who ordained after you it also was interesting about sort of how whether you had any spiritual attainment or not you still had your seniority was the way that that's how they determine who should bow to who first and things like that. When you were there, did you see did any Hindu yogis come and take advantage of the spiritual Oh yeah, definitely. They incorporate. They think the Buddha is part of is Vishnu. So there were lots of Hindus coming. All that they sort of I think more internal Indian pilgrims come to Bodhgaya than others. And then there's a controversy about building this gigantic um, brass Buddha statue that's, I think, going to be taller than the Empire State Building outside of Bodhgaya. Just huge. I don't know how many millions of dollars it's going to cost. And it's a Tibetan project. And the Lama thinks that by having an imprint of the Buddha, you will be benefited far more than if there were a hospital because this imprint, this giant statue, will create a really heavy imprint when you see it. (laughs) And so for all your future lives you're going to be better off than you would be if somebody just happened to make you feel better by giving you a shot now. Of course, there'll be a little hospital down at the bottom, but... And then part of the idea is that it's going to be really impressive for the Indian pilgrims. So it's, you know, when you think about the controversies that are swirling around this object, um, some people are completely against it because they think, well, are you going to take that amount of money? Why don't you build a clinic and say that that's you know, and then, the, then there's the imprint people, and then there's the people saying, well, all these people who are arguing against it are mostly kind of the white people from outside, and the Indian tourists are going to love it. They're going to think it's great. Well, who, you know, that's kind of one of the types of things that go on around a holy place, that they argue about what it really means and what's more important and what's more Buddhist. <laughs> more inseparability of some sort. <laughs> Nirvana, right. <laughs> Right. 
it's, pretty, it's an amazing experience, really, also, to even see how thin people are and how much smaller they are and how much smaller the horses and all the animals are smaller because there isn't enough food, really. It's quite a shock that, that way. And people converge on Bodhgaya because to make a living during the pilgrim season, so there's an extra amount of incredibly poor people there. But it's also, you know, I actually validate the um, pilgrimage center creates well-being for these people to a degree you know people say they don't work any other time of year and all the part around there you just see how difficult it is so it's sort of a teaching in itself that it once was a place with forests and streams and now it's the most violent and corrupt state in india it's terrible and the people get killed in every election and you can't leave bodhgaya at night um people have been killed at the stupa to get their turquoise you know beads off them a german uh, practitioner was killed about five years ago. They like just cut his throat from behind and took his fancy beads. Um, so it's, there's a real intensity of contrast there that helps. That can prevent you from projecting that this is like this beautiful holy place, which is good. But it's also dangerous to give money to the beggars. Actually, they every time. They have a person who follows after you with a stick. Like you go, they have. They're sitting there, but hundreds of them. And you change money in the beginning. Like you, first you pay this money person, and they give you a sack of coins. Each one is really small, and they take about a 30% cut out of your bill to give it to you in the first place, which is annoying because you're mad at them in the beginning. And then you go down the line, you give one to everybody, and when you stop, you have to have someone to defend you against the rest of them. It would like completely tear you apart if there wasn't somebody with a stick there. So it's kind of wild how hard it is. And so I think anyone who goes to India ends up sort of deciding how, how to relate to it, that you can feel comfortable and you're not scared and you sort of say, well, each day I'm going to give X amount or I'm going to give a whole bunch to the leprosy center and then I, can, I feel okay about ignoring all these people on the street. But I think we all go through the same thing at the tea, mm-hmm. you know, or outside of store 24. Or like I left the bank the other day, I'd just been to the machine and there was this lady there saying in this horribly monotonous voice a dollar for heating oil a dollar for heating oil and I didn't give her anything and that it bugged me the rest of the day you know I felt bad I thought well even if she's lying she's still standing out there in the cold and she's obviously not like I mean some of the people around Harvard Square I see them over and over and I've decided that I'm not giving them twenty dollars again like I did the first time you know (laughs) because I see them not being nice to cashiers or different things like that, like you sort of get to know some of them. But sometimes you find in yourself this place where you're not willing to connect with them, and that's really painful. And it's good to be able to examine that and say... Yeah, well, it's almost easier there because you don't expect people to be self-sufficient. Like here, I think your feelings are worse in a certain way. Because you sort of have this feeling of like get a job or you know something like that or everyone everyone should be able to be okay here and and it's hard to admit that they aren't okay and so I don't know it's almost as it's an acute type of situation also in the U.S. So of course when people come from really poor places and they come to the U.S. they think there isn't any poverty at all here um, they can't see it but. By their standards, they're probably not. Yeah. Yeah, but then it's not fair also to think that people, the way people feel doesn't make them poor also. You know, all those things are 
things that for each person to think about. You know, in relation to that, one of the things that I think helps me is um, that it doesn't, that, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, I can't go to India, I can't stand to see all the poverty, but that there's nothing about me seeing or not seeing the poverty that makes any difference whatsoever to the situation. And even my sort of getting convoluted and full of suffering about it doesn't adjust it on any level. Yeah. And it's making hmm. it about me instead of about the poverty. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, I mean, I did live in a very poor area of Brazil for a couple of years, so I got, you know, I had a lot of time to just look at what I did with my mind and feeling devoured and it's like that, that, that kind of thing, like I can't go there because it's too painful for me. Is a relevant. And there's something to me about seeing it and knowing that it exists and not forgetting that. It's true, it can both, um, it can make you see how a lot of the world has to live. It's amazing if you think about it. There's really nothing for them to be a widow in that part of India or something. And it can make you very, it makes you feel like sort of both helpless in a way and committed in another way. And what can you do, you know, just as one person? And um, you couldn't just give them your life. I've thought about that. You know, like you think, okay, well, now we'll trade. You know, you, it doesn't work, it can't be done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that actually is something that the um, the person that I traveled with on uh, my painful trip in 1987. <laughs> I want to know what happened. On that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, has been lucky enough to always have a job where he's been able to take between a month and six weeks off and go to Europe. Mm-hmm. Around thing, he's done this for years. And um, he came back one summer from that and was in that state where he's going on and on and on about how wonderful it was over there and how terrible it was over here. Oh, yeah. And I finally got sick of it and said to him, why don't you just go? Right. Go and I don't mean, come back. No, Pete. Completely. I was sick of listening to him. And um, he actually took me up on it and wound up going to live in Amsterdam for two years after the study. And he came back after the end of the two years and never again had he complained about living there. Oh, good. To live there. Not to but to live there. Right. Because yes, we are screwed up, and boy, are they screwed up too. I mean, there's a whole yeah. other aspect to it that you know, had never really come up for him before. Yeah, I think that's true. And almost anywhere that a human being lives, you end up creating a noxious nest to some degree, I think. You know, like, <laughs> 
which is part of why being able to go away is a really big privilege because you can sort of can get a get a breath or a little bit of a perspective or you know sometimes come back in a way that you relate to your earlier circumstances or with more gratitude or more detachment or something you know i think it, it you know one of the problems is that it can seem like sort of escaping you know that you sort of think oh things are too much for me i better get away for a while and, but sometimes that can be a wholesome kind of decision running away is a solution <laughs> you say no never oh thanks well, I'm not a representative of everyone here do you know her does, do people know her? I think what you're, what you're saying, I mean, I think that's where probably travel and wilderness really is a set and that whole, that whole issue of coming back and how, and maybe in a way, any journey can almost be a pilgrimage. I mean, that's because I think your life must well, and being with yourself while you're away, too. See, you can see yourself in different ways, or there are also sort of parts of who you are come out that you hadn't really seen them in perspective before. <laughs> How bossy you can be, or whatever it is. <laughs> like, you're like, no, no, you know, we really can't miss the train, you know, things like that. It's interesting, when I give a talk, I always try to leave open that someone would completely disagree, and I don't want to feel like I'm up here suppressing people, but I kind of don't, I hope that when I speak that I don't say things that s sort of make people desire to actually leave, <laughs> you know, like and never come back again, right? Right, well, yeah, that's true. Right, that's hard sometimes. It's true, and then sometimes you feel displaced from the person that you were before, and it's kind of hard to sort of relate to people who think that you're the same, or to try to explain to them what's what you feel like has happened to you or stuff like that. There's some, sometimes this sort of space that opens up that isn't all that comfortable. Um, like you're detached from things that you didn't want to be detached from or, you know, sort of these... Sometimes it's great because you can see, you know, sometimes... And sometimes it seems like some of your patterns that you find that are things that you're committed to are sort of futile or and how to integrate all that change that you've felt 
into the life that you have and that you still choose to continue. You don't want to like have a different life necessarily. So, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I know that of the people I was on retreat with, um, it was really surprising the the things that people wanted that were not necessarily just sort of Buddhist things. That one of them um, wanted to sort of be able to be honest with herself. You know, another one was in the middle of a court case and she wanted space. Um, another person had lost a child and didn't really say it to anyone, but we kind of all knew it. And she was there kind of trying to find peace. She'd just start crying all these different times. And, you know, it was just really the, um, the wish that the Dharma and going away and all these things, you know, because they could have gone to a retreat at home, <laughs> I think. So I think there is something important that can come from making a space between I mean I think she's right too that just that you have to also be able to be with pain that you just can't always have the luxury of running away from it and also when you go I think when I was talking about the story that I might write it's also about like why certain people were so upset by this event was because what they were seeing was their own life their own past life where they had been betrayed by someone who went away from them for a little while who went on sabbatical from their relationship or something so it's kind of like what you bring is also sometimes what you find. You don't necessarily get away from it when you're in another place, but sometimes you can sort of see it from a slightly different place. Like, oh, I'm in retreat, you know, so I don't have to relate to this in the same way. Or, oh, I'm in Bhutan and I'm worried about this. And kind of can help sometimes. By yourself or with yeah. somebody?
Oh, thanks. So, um, did what happened with the writing that you did in in that um, situation? I did that on hold. I first had to write it, so I'm kind of familiar with the writing. Two pieces that I ever took on. The f- the first time I ever went to a writing retreat, or I was sponsored to be at this place, it was a in Provincetown, a nine-month residency and stuff. The stuff I wrote there was so unbelievably terrible. <laughs> like, it was a lesson in itself. <laughs> like, you have the best conditions. You're being paid to live here and write this great stuff. And so I started writing this like great stuff. It was terrible. And some, I mean, I think sometimes you need some like I don't know something to take you down a little bit <laughs> when you're. Or, the, or to acknowledge that sometimes what you think is going to happen just is not going to happen. Like you think you're going to get some kind of a product from a from an experience, and it doesn't come. Just a question: what, When you're say on retreat, like like an incredible plot starts coming in your mind, like what do you do? Well, I write it down. <laughs> I mean, I try not to, um, you know, go and spend the whole day writing it down. But I, for the last seven years or so, I was writing a novel, and I didn't go to any retreat without my laptop, which restricted the kinds of retreats I could go to. <laughs> I didn't go to any retreats at IMS, for example. And <laughs> I finally thought I was finished, and I signed up for one um, in, in Western Connecticut. And I had to do copy editing from the press or something like that. It took four times as long as I thought, so I was with my laptop again. And I had this cubicle that was separated from someone else by a curtain, and I could not turn off the laptop without this horrible beep, really loud beep. <laughs> so, like, I did this. I finally, like, and I was working till really late at night, and the person next to me was someone I knew was an insomniac, and I could tell she would get up, and, like, the thing would beep, and she'd get up at 10.30 or 12 at night and go marching to the bathroom and come back, and I knew she was mad at me. It was, <laughs> it was really funny. Then I started trying to turn it off under the pillow, like I'd like shove it under the pillow and turn it off really quickly, and then that worked once or twice. And then the next time, the, like the, the voltage converter fell down between the bed springs and made even worse noise. <laughs> so anyway, it was just a, a thing about don't write on retreats. <laughs> but I actually really like a sense of like free formness on retreats now that um, you can practice some and that there's a little space for other things, and sometimes even the interaction that of having a little bit of talking or something like that, I find it isn't bad. Like, on the one hand, you sort of see something about yourself when you're in a completely hermetic retreat and you see how you can go on and on and on and on and on about something. But if you just like talk at lunch or something for an hour, I'm not advocating that everybody now do this on retreats where you're not supposed to talk, but on retreats that I've been on where there's a little bit of interaction allowed, it tends to kind of defuse that. Like you lose some concentration, but you also can gain some equanimity and just sort of seeing that there's another reality out there and people are not all against you or whatever it is that you think is happening. You don't perseverate quite to the same degree. Perseverate, you don't just like go on and on in your mind about, you know, like... Well, paranoia or getting really into something like... um, I know in the three-month course at IMS, nowadays they make you request your toothpaste and things by um, note. But on a long retreat, the people at the staff used to just have this open area and they said they couldn't stand it. Like people would come in and they'd been thinking for a week about the brand of toothpaste. So they'd come in and they'd say, Colgate! (laughs) Okay, you know, (laughs) like, 
oh no, maybe I should have crest. <laughs> well, it's okay, you know, make up your mind. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and things like that. I mean, you know, you can really go for And it has all these, you know, associations and meanings for you, and you don't even know what the person's, con- why it's Colgate, you know, and it can't be something else or stuff like that. <laughs> It doesn't take long for that to start happening either. <laughs> like a day. <laughs> Your madness comes out. If, but the thing is, if only you knew that everyone was like that. I guess the other thing that's always funny on the retreat is at the end, or when the retreat had any kind of group, and the women's retreat does, to find out that you know, somebody you thought was so serene right. in a way they walk. Right. Right. And how sometimes you get into this whole thing of like, I would like to seem like a serene person. And you know, like, you're like hanging up your coat and everything, like as if you were a serene person. You find yourself going farther and farther into sort of like I decided at one point, one retreat, I was going to sit in my room all the time because I was going to seem very concentrated to myself by just sitting in my room. And then around, the, I wasn't going to go to the talks because it was too conceptual and I didn't want to fill my mind with words and knowledge and stuff. But then I'd start to get really bored and lonely, so I would sneak and listen to the talk from the outside and I like was I, the boards would squeak on one side of the room so I didn't go there because I didn't want anyone to know that I was sneaking and hearing the dogs <laughs> and then pretty soon this other person started sneaking and hearing the talks too who was the person I thought was the worst person on the whole retreat and there we were both of us sneaking to the talks and I thought well what about my strategy of being in my room <laughs> where was this left me you know, like in cahoots with this totally disorganized weirdo <laughs> We're exactly the same. <laughs> it actually didn't. It wasn't all that helpful to just sit in my room. I mean, what it was helpful was in seeing, you know, how distracted I was and how I didn't really like it, and it wasn't helpful. Nonetheless, I was committed to it because I wanted it to work and stuff like that. <laughs> well, anything that's probably good enough. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.